Nice, I got my Hound Cat toy set today. Oh, cool. Oh, there's a smudge on the rhubarb one. Well, let me see if I can get that cleaned up. Hey, 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 man, don't touch another man's rhubarb. James, this is really the lamest joke setup we've done yet. Maybe so, but I can't afford good writers. There are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The Penny and James can sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hey there out there in podcast land, I'm James Irish. And I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. And while we're not yet ready to start begging for money for good writers, we are coming at you now with our 10th ever episode. Woo! Double digits. That's pretty freaking cool. Pretty damn impressive, I must admit. And what are we doing to celebrate? Are we doing a big theatrical release or a triple-A cartoon? No. No, we're doing a cartoon no one's ever heard of, except for probably me and now James. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we are talking about the Hound Cats, which is a Depate Freeling production from, I want to say, 1971? Uh, was it 1971 or was it like 1969? I'm... Let me check good old Wikipedia. Never let me down, Wikipedia. Oh, wait. <laughs> See, that's just how obscure this one is. Normally, I mean, if we if you told me, James, when did Hong Kong Fui come out? I'd immediately say 74. When did Wacky Races come out? 68. You know, we know the big ones. You were close. 1972. Okay. Thought about maps, because around this time, Joe Ruby and Ken Spears had just left Hanna-Barbera after creating what would become one of that company's foundational characters, Scooby-Doo. And they landed at Depate Freeling Enterprises, where they would find their ambitions of becoming producers a reality for a, a time. Yeah, they created uh, multiple shows uh, for for the Patty Freeling, uh, other than the Houndcats, I know they also did, didn't, weren't they responsible with the oddball couple? Possibly. And did they have anything to do with the Barclays? I think so. And, uh, Bailey's Comet. Yes. Yes, the one that still eludes us. Yeah, I have yet to find episodes of it. I was gonna say, though, that Bailey's Comet is definitely, of those four, the one that looks the least, uh, the Patty Freeling in art style, because that one totally looks very arshy-ish, if I remember right. Mm. Now, back when we did our Thundar episode months ago, feels like forever now, we mentioned that Fred Silverman should have known what he was getting into when he asked Ruby Spears to form their own animation company to compete with Hanna-Barbera. And this cartoon, The Hound Cats, is a prime example of that, because this is one of the most Hanna-Barbera-esque shows I've seen not to come from Hanna-Barbera or from Ruby Spears' own studio, for that matter. <laughs> and, and yet it's probably one of my favorite of uh, the Patty Freeling's TV output, but their TV output is nothing compared to their theatrical output. So, you know, mm, very true. Uh, also interesting note. I just was looking at uh, the Wikipedia page. Uh, seemingly this show also aired at one point combined with the Barclays as the hound cats and the Barclays. So, hmm. That was what executives liked to do. They figured packaging cartoons together would entice kids to stick around to watch both. It's 
sometimes got some very weird combinations. Yeah, I, I'm still scratching my head over the Hong Kong Fui Godzilla hour. The Tarzan and Batman hour. Heathcliff and the Dingbats. Yes, and on and on. Ooh, Dingbats is not a cartoon I look forward to talking about or reviewing. Yeah, we'll, we'll put that on the uh, low priority list along with that uh, the, the Dino Dogs or what that was, that, that other Space Ace. The not Ruby Spears Space Ace. Oh, <laughs> Astro and the Space Mutts? Yes, that's the one. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the Dingbats is potentially... I haven't watched... I haven't rewatched all of uh, Ruby Spears' output, but of the stuff I've rewatched, it is potentially the worst thing to come from Ruby Spears Productions. The only reason I say potentially is I have yet to find any episodes of, uh, or I found one episode, I think, but I haven't watched it yet of, God dang it, what was it? It's uh, it's this one with like, this uh, is set in the, it's it's set in the future and it's got some, and it's got a spaceship, uh, made out of junk and I I, I'm not, I don't know. I can't rickety rocket. Yeah. Oh <laughs> man. Rickety rocket scares me. Yeah. I am. I am also, as you can see, severely dancing around the problem with that. Yeah. <laughs> it, it feels like some exec at like, uh, Ruby Spears, all fat Albert and said, yeah, we can do that, but let's put it in the future and add, uh, Add Scooby-Doo themes to it. So anyhow, none of this is getting to the heart of what the Houndcats is. So the best 10-cent description I can give is, imagine if a group of Hanna-Barbera funny animal characters suddenly got jobs as freelance spies and special agents in the western United States around the World War I era. Yeah, I like to kind of think about it as, like, Mission Impossible in, like, the late Wild West era, which is kind of accurate and also really an interesting concept when you think about it very true very true and there the mission impossible comparison is apt because the whole stock this message will self-destruct in five seconds gag occurs once per episode here as well as the amazing gadgets they use in every episode too oh the gadgets oh man that is my biggest grudge with this cartoon, but we'll get into that in the episode reviews. Oh, just just be happy I didn't pick some of the other episodes where they go Rube Goldberg to the nth dimension level stuff. <laughs> You'll have to share one of those with me after this. <laughs> um, one of the episodes I picked uh, for this was actually, is actually my favorite episode of the series, and the other one was just the most Ruby Spears one in the whole series. So Yeah. <laughs> So let's talk about our team of, of, of protagonists. Starting with Stutz, he's a confident cat in a Boy Scout outfit. Personality-wise, he reminds me of what Top Cat might be like with some work ethic. <laughs> he's also voiced by uh, Michael Bell. This is his first uh, voice acting role. He'd, he'd later go to become pretty much a staple for Hanna-Barbera after this and appear in a lot of other shows in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, we've run into him a couple times already with incidental and supporting roles on Thundar and Space Ace. But, you know, we, we've got a quick CV here for some of his best-known stuff. You'd remember him as Lazy Smurf, Duke from G.I. Joe, Quacker Jack on Darkwing Duck, and Lance on Voltron. 
Lance from Voltron is probably my favorite of his roles because it, it's kind of the voice he uses for like Mark and Speed Buggy and uh, All Star and the Snorks, but it sounds like he's just pissed. <laughs> so it's like, damn, All Star got pissed. Yes. Uh, in, in this, he nasals up his voice a lot more, which kind of gives it a kind of Don Adams esque kind of feel to me. Yeah, yeah, I, n- I noticed that too. It's some occasion I was expecting him to start going, go, go, gadget, this or that. <laughs> Sorry about that, Chief. Oh, which also, I, I know he I said multiple of his roles, but I still wanted to mention he's also the Riddler in uh, the Challenge of the Super Friends, which kind of does a similar voice to this. So, Oh, and he was a good Riddler. <laughs> he was. Now, second in command of the team is the Wheelman, Ding Dog, a canine who's as smart as his name would have you guess. <laughs> he's also very friendly and nice, much like... You know how you typically describe a dog, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. His uh, voice actor is Stu Gillum, and I think he's one of the first uh, voice... I don't think he's the first, but he was one of the earliest African-American uh, voice actors in TV animation. So, Yep. And, you know, animation fans would know him, but probably know him best as uh, Curly in Hanna-Barbera's cartoons based on the Harlem Globetrotters. And he's also done a sort of TV and stand-up work, too. He's got a really good voice. I'll give him that. Mm-hmm. Now, they're aided by a trio of specialists on the team, starting with Putty Puss, Master of Disguise, voiced by longtime comedy veteran Joe Besser. And the worst stooge. Uh, yeah, he was the third stooge between the runs of Shemp and Curly Joe. And he's done voices in animation before and after this one. Uh, Hanna-Barbera fans would probably know him best as uh, Babu from... Genie and Scooby's Laugh Olympics. He also did a Scare Bear in a Yogi Bear's Space Race. Yeah, in, uh, Galaxy Goof Ups. I, I I really hate to say this joke in this, but God, Putty Puss sounds like a vaginal disease. Oh, okay. This episode's getting the content warning. I couldn't help it. It's just you hear that, and it's just. I had to say it. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> oh, dear. It, it, you're right. You, it, it, it can't be helped when you hear that. So we should probably move along in that case. Next, we have um, the muscle, which was muscle mutt. Yep, spelled M-U-S-S-E-L. He's an old English sheepdog voiced by Aldo Ray, who did tough guy roles for numerous productions. And the most prominent animation voice I could find for him was Sullivan from Don Bluth's debut feature film, The Secret of Nim. Yeah, he didn't exactly have a lot of voice roles to, but he again, he's got a really good voice. Like a lot of the people in this just have good voices. Mm-hmm. Rounding out the sapient members of the team is Rhubarb, a dog in a sombrero, but not a single Mexican stereotype about him beyond the hat. He probably just likes the hat. I mean, that's fair. Yeah. Yep. Dawes Butler, one of Hanna-Barbera's go-to performers. We'd be here all day if we listed his voice roles. Hey. <laughs> yep. Performs him for the first three episodes, but for the remainder of the run, he's performed by Laffin's Man of a Thousand Faces and almost as many tiny bicycle pratfalls, Artie Johnson. Very interesting. But he's mm-hmm. stupid. <laughs> 
Oh. I'm very familiar with Laugh-In. I used to watch that with my mom when it reran on uh, Nick at Night. So Yeah, and if if you can, track down some of Artie Johnson's stuff with Sammy Davis Jr. Those <laughs> two go are, are perfect together. Artie Johnson's appeared in a few uh, Hanna-Barbera productions, too. So. Yeah, and one of his last voice roles was as Vermin Vundabar in Justice League Unlimited. I actually, oh, wait, that's right. I remember that now. Yeah. Let's see. Dang. Yeah, that's right. So with Ken Ruby, Joe Spears, and multiple Hanna-Barbera voice acting regulars, you'd easily be forgiven for mistaking this for an actual Hanna-Barbera cartoon. But the confluence of animation talent legends doesn't stop there. Because under employee of Depate and Freeling was one of Freeling's old Termite Terrace cohorts, Bob McKimson. He worked as animation director on this one, but you'd know him best as the creator of Foghorn Leghorn and the Tasmanian Devil. I, I feel that Bob McKimson or Robert McKimson um, is one of those guys that did a lot of stuff for Warner for the Warner Brothers Looney Tunes lot, but he gets very underappreciated, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, it doesn't help that he passed on in the late 70s, just before the big revival project started, like the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movie and the Looney, Looney, Looney Bugs Bunny movie, which were overseen by Chuck Jones and Frizz Freeling, respectively. You would think that McKimson would get his own opportunity, too, after that, but it wasn't to be. Because yeah. it, it, you always hear about, you know, Jones and Freeling and Clampett, and to an extent Avery, but I think most people talk, when they get to Avery, they mostly talk about MGM, his MGM stuff, but you hear about them, but McKimson gets left in the shadows a lot, and it's really sad because he created like a lot of iconic characters and a lot of iconic cartoons. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about Bob much more when we talk about, I say, talk about Foghorn. I also just want to give respect to him since he has the same first name that I really do. So, <laughs> a fellow Robert. Uh, before we get into the episodes proper, I also want to give some mention to the music by Doug Goodwin and Eric Rogers, particularly the theme song, with that distinctive, heavy fuzz guitar tone. You know, the sort of thing you'd hear in the Rolling Stones song Satisfaction or in Jimi Hendrix's work. And it seems to fit a pattern of Frizz Freeling work that I've noticed. I also like a lot of the background music because there's some, a lot of background tunes that are just really chill. Like, it, just very chill and relaxed sounding. Yeah. But that pattern, whether it's the 12-bar blues we, we saw in the Three Little Bops short a couple weeks ago, or when they brought in Gary Lewis and the Playboys to do the theme song for Super 6, or the, or the guitar sounds in this show, it feels like Frizz was making a point to keep somewhat current on musical trends. You know, as opposed to what... Hanna-Barbera and Filmation were doing with just this light, airy, non-offensive pop music for shows like Scooby-Doo and the Archies. I, I just want to say that while I do have enjoyment for Super 6, the theme song is the best part of Super 6. <laughs> <laughs> that theme song is super catchy. I, I, I do want to say that while writing-wise, yes, this is very Hanna-Barbera-esque and animation-wise, character designs are very not Hanna-Barbera for the most part. It's True. very, very to Patty Freeling-looking designs, and I, I really like them because they're kind of sketchy and but very expressive and very exaggerant. It's very, they're very good. 
And we'll see some of that exaggeration come to the fore in our second episode quite a bit. But are we ready to dive in? Yes. Let's get into the first episode. There's no biz like snow biz mission. Man, did they like that doing that joke in the 70s? Mm-hmm. There's even an episode. Because, yeah, there's even an episode of Scooby-Doo that's there's no business like snow business. And with no exposition, we watch a plane crash in a snowstorm in a mountain range. Before we switch right over to the hound cats themselves, who are en route to Cucamonga for a vacation. Unfortunately for them, they're stopped by a message from the... Well, they're stopped by a train that delivers them a crate. Yep, according to Muscle Mutt, it's just a poor limp octopus inside the crate. <laughs> no, it's actually a set of bagpipes. Yeah, Ding Dog attempts to play them, and as he proceeds, they get a pre-recorded message from the chief. That's an impressive recording for, what, 19, like, oh, shoot, what? time period would that be the 1914 america yeah (laughs) but they're told about their new mission that there is a plane crash with some secret documents and they need to get to them before this enemy team called grogan's gang does yeah and while they're the mission is being described we see some pictures of grogan's gang you know we got a typical sly schemer type we got a a stupid type and then wait just a minute is that the skipper from gilligan's island he sure looks like him, but he sure doesn't sound like him. Not a lick. Sounds more like Choo Choo from freaking Top Cat. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell we've got that on the brain since that's our next episode. Spoilers? <laughs> uh, well, they'd find out when we get to the ad break. <laughs> I just want to say that the leader of Grogan's gang is so obviously Dawes Butler, because it sounds like it sounds like the commissioner from freaking Ed. Uh, from George, George of the Jungle. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I'm wondering if Harry is, uh, not Harry, Fred, the, the dumb looking one is is part of there. Because it reminded me of the quick drama McGraw voice. It possibly could be. And I think that is, uh, I think Dawes is doing all three of them, actually. Okay. Because uh, Dawes wasn't Choo Choo's voice actor, but Choo Choo's voice actor isn't in the show. So I think it's Dawes doing an imitation of Choo Choo's voice actor. Right. Because probably making him sound like Alan Hale would have been a little too on the nose. <laughs> the Houndcats are warned that Grogan's gang has similar training, so that there's going to be a bit of a challenge. And of course, the bagpipes will just self-destruct once the message ends, and the good guys head for the hills. A nearby prairie dog isn't so lucky. Prairie dog doesn't know, but he's already ready to surrender as he waves his white flag after the explosion. Yeah. So with our necessary exposition out of the way, we get our title card over a shot of a fancy-looking hotel. And Stutz is briefing the team on his plan, where Rhubarb will be building a decoy plane for a puss as the pilot to take Grogan's gang off the scent while the rest of the team gets the papers. Meanwhile, Muscle Mutt is having trouble figuring out how to put a salami inside of a suitcase. <laughs> Yeah, that's the one question anybody has about the plan. And uh, when Stutz says to just cut it in half, uh, Musclebuck cuts the suitcase in half. And now it's fine! <laughs> I, I love Musclebuck's deliveries. They're so good. <laughs> that guy really needed to be in more voice acting. No kidding. But right next door, 
by sheer contrivance. Grogan's gang is plotting their strategy under the assumption that the Houndcats are already on their tail, and they come up with an identical plan to our hero's plan. Quite impressively, I might say. They really are on, like, the same wavelength. Almost. but Almost. And both group's leaders insist on getting the jump on the other, and they exit their rooms at the same time, just missing each other. The irony. Or coincidence, more. Yeah, yeah, that's the sort of irony that Alanis Morissette would write about, as in, not quite irony. <laughs> so, carrying on. At the Rockies, Sparkplug... We didn't even mention Sparkplug, did we? Uh, no, they're, they're somewhat sentient car. Totally not speed buggy. Yeah, t- completely not speed buggy. Or more... Oh, God, what was the name of the... What was the name of the... Uh, the uh, was it Chuckabug? Or... It was Chuckaboom. Chuckaboom, yeah. Actually, yeah, it's more like Chuckaboom when you think about it. Which Ruby Spears... Ruby Joe Ruby and Ken Spears did work on that show, too. So worked on uh, the... Uh, Perils of Penelope Pitstop, so, hmm. Yeah, yeah, Sparkplug is uh, significant enough that he, he gets a spot in the theme song alongside the others, so slight oversight on our part, but, you know, Sparkplug also kind of plays a very minor role in this one compared to other episodes. Unlike Speed Buggy, he doesn't directly talk. He just makes puttering sounds and actually will come on command and leave on command, which is impressive for a car. Old school jalopy. Yeah. But for this episode, he's outfitted with skis instead of tires. Now, this begs the question of just how it's capable of moving on flat ground. But uh, no matter. We're, we're going to have bigger fish to fry. Sometimes you just got to have that uh, suspension of disbelief. Yeah, I'm trying here. I'm trying. <laughs> there are limits, of course. Yeah. So Muscle Mud and Rhubar break off to build the decoy plane while Frank and the gang has his decoy already built and Harry, the uh, the skipper lookalike, disguises himself as Muscle Mutt, complete with an impression. The game is officially afoot. Really? I thought it was at hand. I didn't see any feet. <laughs> uh, I guess they didn't animate the feet to save money. <laughs> So Dutz, Putty Puss, and uh, Ding Dog follow uh, the tracks to try to get off to see where uh, Grogan's gang is going, since they found tracks and seen found that they've gotten there before them. However, despite few, uh, should we talk about the gadget they use to get up the mountain? Oh yes, the first of many. Oh, so convenient, perfect items for the situation. Rhubarb's high-rise hydraulic cliff scaler. A giant jack that literally takes spark plug up, 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 up to the mountain, and then ejects him right off of it onto the top of the mountain or cliff. Yeah, it's a good thing they had that thing positioned right, or else this... No, they probably would have survived the fall. This isn't that kind of cartoon. <laughs> Before going further, they get Putty Puss to dress himself. Well, they see that they see Grogan's gang, so they get Putty Puss to dress himself up in his pilot outfit so that he can distract them while they continue looking. However, while Putty Puss is distracting them, Stutz and company get bump into the fake muscle mutt. Yep, the hero's suspicion is aroused when the fake sheepdog turns down his favorite sandwich. 
a bizarre concoction with, I wrote all this down, sardines, chopped liver, salami, pickles, sour cream, sauerkraut, and topped with chocolate syrup. I know two characters that would totally eat that. Shaggy and Scooby? Oh, 100%. <laughs> now, the fake muscle butt changes his mind when he realizes this isn't playing in Peoria, so to speak. And he can barely handle eating it in one gulp before starting to lead Stutz and Dig Dog to Grogan's decoy. Let's see. And boy, is it a decoy. He, let's see. As they got, let's see. Which scene happens next? Is it is it them getting the to the decoy, or is it like, uh, or is it Putty Puss uh, with Grogan's gang? Well, in my notes, it's Putty Puss encountering Grogan's gang and his long-winded story of his quote-unquote crash. Hey, he puts on a show for these two. I I do love Joe Besser's acting as like Putty Puss because it's like, oh, I crashed. <laughs> Grogan's a little suspicious. He questions Putty Puss by saying that they heard that the uh, pilot had already been rescued, and Putty Puss quickly shows him his pilot license, but Grogan isn't convinced until Putty Puss decides to show him where the plane and papers supposedly are. And that's the cue for the first commercial break, and when we return, Rhubarb is finished up building the decoy. And he and the real muscle butt place the decoy documents under it before they leave the scene just before a putty puss leads Grogan and Frank to it. I, I do like that scene though, where like it's like, oh, we forgot to put the plans. Oh, just put them under there. Uh, pick up the it's like pick up the plane. Alright, now I put them under there. Put it now put it down gently and just throws it down. <laughs> Which I'm kinda like, why are you worried about him throwing it down gently? It, it's supposed to be a crash plate anyways. Yeah. Now when they get to the decoy, Putty Puss objects because that those are his documents, and the baddies eject him from the premises. And Putty doesn't mind since they fell for it. Well they did <laughs> Joe Besser really is good on this. Yeah. It, it it makes me feel bad that I have to refer to him as the worst stooge, but that's that's the honest truth, sadly. Uh, he, he didn't quite fit the Three Stooges dynamic. Oh, I, I think part of that was also he made a stipulation that he'd be allowed to hit, like, Mo back, which kind of breaks a lot of how that whole setup works. Or that he could stand up to Mo, and it's like, that's, that's not how it works. <laughs> so Grogan eventually finds the decoy briefcase, but it's more like a matryoshka doll. Yep, because in that briefcase is another briefcase, which has another briefcase, which is empty. So with Grogan and, and Frank back on the hut, Muscle has led Stetson Ding Dog to Grogan's fake plane. And I gotta mention the walk cycle we see for our two heroes here. <laughs> Where they literally just take, the, take them up and down really fast. Yeah, they look so jittery. If they tried that on the real-life Rockies, they fall flat on their faces multiple times. However, Muscle Mutt mysteriously disappears, and they, they don't think that's a big deal, because, you know, they don't have time for that. Seymour. Right. They're, Nobody they're ain't got time for that. <laughs> yeah, they're trying to find the plans, and while well, Stutz finds Ding Dog's foot. Vice versa. You, you got that backwards. Ding, oh. Do Ding Dog finds Stutz's foot, because Ding Dong's one. It's like, I found something, Stutz, and Stutz's like, yeah, you found my foot. Now let go of it. Right. But Stutz does find an attaché case, 
whose color changes between close-up and distance shots. I don't have money for retakes, I guess. No. <laughs> or time. Yeah. It is naturally a trap, which places the cone of silence from Get Smart over our heroes. When uh, Ding Dong says, well, at least it didn't send the plane automatically flying towards the mountains. Oh, well, guess what? <laughs> oh, what a jinx. And with no controls for Ding Dong to take take control of, the duo are sent on a roller coaster ride, practically. That's, a, that's actually another good line from this episode, which is, it's like, Stutz is, I mean, uh, Ding Dong's like, good thing that you're a, you're an expert pilot, right, Stutz? And he's like, yeah, but I'm not an expert pilot enough to be able to drive a plane with no controls, Ding Dong. <laughs> so they get sent flying, but fortunately for them, their cohorts does see them. Yes, indeed. Stutz and Ding fly right over the reunited uh, trio of specialists. And they proceed in Sparkplug to rescue their pals via Rhubarb's mobile runaway plane rescue unit, which is basically a hydraulic ladder, and his wind-up cockpit clipper cutter. How convenient. <laughs> uh, you know, you gotta tell me they didn't have convenient stuff in Mission Impossible. Not quite to this level, but I think that's part of what the joke is. <laughs> Cuts um, out the bottom of the plane and sends them falling down into the into spark plug. And reunited, the Hound Cats resume the search for the real plane, but they don't wind up beating Grogan to it. Nope, Grogan got there first and has the papers. What are the Hound Cats to do? Well, Stutz isn't beat. He deploys the Reflector Deflector Projector to trick the gang into thinking it's another decoy. Ah, uh, the old Scooby-Doo tactic of video cameras. It's like, projection cameras can do anything. Hmm. Yeah, that's not even the most abusive version of that bit. <laughs> that, that we'll see today. Yeah. Uh, at least in this case, they are at least projecting it on a surface. There's so many episodes of Scooby-Doo where it's just, the, it's like, it's like they use video projectors. What is it projecting on? Absolutely nothing. Projectors don't work that way. <laughs> right. So props to them at least projecting it on a rock. <laughs> yeah. But this projection of Stutz and Ding Dog finding a, a new set of plans convinces Grogan's gag to catch up and the chase is on. Into a forest, around a snow mound, and into a cave where Rhubarb has a quick claw case snatcher already installed into the mountain. They pre-planned for this. That's why they're so good. <laughs> oh. oh, oh man. It's one of those things where it feels like the show is making you do the work for it. <laughs> After they steal the case from the uh, bad guys, they then... Oh, I forgot what, how Rhubarb phrased it for his next gadget. It's like, it'll be all over for them. And it is, because it drops snow all over them. Yeah. we pres Presumably, the, the Grogan's gang is rounded up. And reveling in their success, the Houndcats eventually resume their vacation plans. 
But however, it seems that Muscle Mutt has brought with him a souvenir from their latest mission. An entire grizzly bear. Much to the despair of everyone else in the car who immediately scram out of the car. And as Muscle Mutt tries to convince them that the bear is friendly, they ride off or run off, in the case of four out of five members, into the sunset. Rewatching this episode does remind me, I need to get a screen cap of Stutz's face when he sees the grizzly bear, because it's really freaking great. <laughs> oh, now, can I just mention that that whole gag with the bear comes out of the left field of nowhere? Yep. Entirely. Where was Muscle Mutt even keeping that? And where did they find a bear in the first place? You would think they'd set up that gag to make it a payoff for later. Sometimes you just need a gag, and you just go with what you come up with. Uh, I've been guilty of that too, so... As you can attest. Hey, whatever works. Sometimes off-the-cuff is the best method. I I was going to try to think of something to rhyme, but I couldn't. We're going to get our rhyming dictionary, so we'll be right back after this break. After these messages, we'll be right back. On the next Pemmy and James podcast, he was a ratings disaster in primetime, but went over great on Saturday mornings for so long he became a fixture of syndication for decades. He's Top Cat, the indisputable leader of the gang, and the most endearing con artist you can think of. In two weeks, we see how well the adventures of TC, Benny the Ball, Choo Choo, and the rest hold up. Just please don't listen to the podcast on a police phone. Dibble's on our case about that. All right, so next episode is the Ruckus on the Rails mission. Gosh, that even sounds like a Scooby-Doo episode. Quite. If you if you took the mission part off, of course, but yeah, the Ruckus on the Rails. Zoink, Scoob! Because <laughs> this is the most Ruby Spears episode of this entire series. What exactly is a Scoob? It beats me, Muscle Mutt. I think they're in the wrong show. <laughs> Jeez, that's what's a zoinks! <laughs> Impressions aside, we open on a late night, a train in the West, and a junior conductor setting up the premise with one line. They're not wasting any time. Seemingly, railroads are having trouble because there's a railroad ghost that's stopping them and stealing their trains. Yep, it's the ghost train of Midnight Jones. And we get said ghost train right away with its conductor cackling in his all his fluorescent line art glory. To their credit, while it's simple, it it is effective. (laughs) The conductors slam the brakes and go in reverse as the ghost train vanishes. And we spin cut to our heroes driving in the daylight. I'm also going to say that while the animation in the previous episode wasn't good... Here's leagues better than these this episode. This episode's animated badly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's there's gonna be a bunch of errors here. It's pretty rough. Yeah. But our gang of hound cats get stopped by another railroad. Kinda. <laughs> well, it's definitely a railroad. Yeah, they hear they hear a train, but they don't see one. Except Stutz points out that it's a toy train. This is where they're going to get their next mission, with the chief expositing that Midnight Jones operated in the Superstition Mountain years ago, 
and is currently haunting the Arizona and Southwest Rail. Now no trains are getting through, with government business being held up in addition to passengers, and it's threatening the livelihood of the Arizona and Southwest Rail Company. Wait a second, was it literally called the Superstitious Mountains? Superstition Mountain, yes. I somehow missed that. That is so bad and hilarious at the same time. Quite. It is rather on the nose. Yeah. I, I like that Ding Dog was like, who would play with toy trains? And it's like, the chief. Naturally. Oh, well then. <laughs> so the Houndcats are to fix this whole mess. And of course, this message will self-destruct in five seconds, causing them to flee in spark plug. But they needn't have worried. Yeah, seemingly the train goes into the mouth of a random cow skull, which <laughs> remarks, Even in my condition, a guy's gotta eat. I gotta be honest, I did not see that gag coming. That was a good gag. I, yeah. I, that was a good gag. Even and apparently it defused the bomb, too. <laughs> hey, it's amazing what superstitious ghost stomach acid can do <laughs> well roof of mouth acid actually because there's no stomach for it to go into ecto spit i don't know ecto, <laughs> ecto spitzism i don't know <laughs> nothing we'll, we'll we'll get ray and egon on that so the hound cats are puzzling over catching how to catch a ghost but Stutz says it'll be a breeze, which Putty thinks they need in the awful heat they're enduring. Well, they are in Arizona. Yeah. The only place hotter than Texas. So Stutz explains they're going to talk to the Farnsworths, the owner of the A&R, and borrow a train... Oh, I'm sorry, the A&S. Intending to borrow a train to use Rhubarb's Caboose Car Ghost Catcher. I'm not even going to bother pointing out how convenient these things are. At this point, I'm just going to roll with it. <laughs> That's the best way to do it with this show. Yeah. And Rhubarb asks if there's any special attachments they need, but Stutz just wants the usual gadgets. And a guarantee. Gadgets, gizmos, and guarantee, I think is what he said. Yeah. Now at how the descriptive. rail office... Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I, was just, I was just wanting to say how descriptive. <laughs> and alliterative. Now, while Judd's Farnsworth is scoffing at the caboose plan, cousin Jason Farnsworth is ready to try anything to save the business. Stutz tells him that nothing can go wrong with him and the job, then proceeds to make a massive mess of all their documents on the desk. Womp womp. Oh! Something tells me I shouldn't have asked that last question. <laughs> hmm. One of them seems not interested in this, and one of them is... Hmm, this doesn't sound like a familiar setup that I've seen Ruby Spears do before. Mm-hmm. But at nightfall, Rhubarb's caboose is in position. I feel like I'm talking about his rear end. I was about to say, man, that's a, that's a sentence. <laughs> and it's wired so they can control the train from said caboose. And off they go with little animation hiccups all over the place like disappearing buttons. Yeah, this episode's... Like, I already said it, but man, this this episode's rough. <laughs> and oh yeah, Sparkplug does his most human thing we've seen to date. He waves goodbye! That was actually kind of cute. Yeah, but Midnight Jones can be heard cackling from a nearby building. Boy, this setup just keeps getting more and more familiar. I just can't put my finger on it. 
the Swinx. <laughs> However, they don't get to meet the ghost this time. Instead, someone, some black figure, decides to change the uh, tracks on them. Yeah, just as they're spotting the the ghost train. Oh, I should mention that, that there's a gag here where Dig Dog wants to wait until daylight. Stutz replies, that's why we're not going to see the ghost in daylight. And Dig Dog says, I know, because there it is. Oh, I did forget about that. My bad. It's quite all right. I've forgotten about plenty of things before, so. But I, I bring that up because assigning a black voice actor the scaredy cat role is a little bit on the cringeworthy side. Eh. Even if he's playing a dog and not a human. Eh, he's still doing it well. Though, that that's totally a shaggy line from Scooby-Doo. Mm. Like, just to add another Ruby Spears reference is that Ding Dog's line does 100% sound like a line Shaggy would have said. So, like you said, a shadowy figure pulls the switch and sends the caboose off a nearby cliff. There's more cackling, the ghost train disappears, and the hound cats are bound for danger. Fortunately, as a roll down a untracked hill, which... Why would you have it to where you could, like, reroute the track to go down a freaking cliff anyways? That's a fair question. But uh, Stutz orders Rhubarb to use the ghost-catching gizmos to clear a path. They suck up a boulder, they replant a tree, then they vacuum up a cactus, which somehow leaves the heroes stinging. And they still... And they replant the cactus after they suck it up somehow. Um, right. Yeah, I, I want to mention Rhubarb's line whenever, like, Stutz gives him that order, he's, order, he's like, it might just work, or it might just not. <laughs> it's a very good uh, Artie Johnson delivery. Yeah. Meanwhile, vacuuming out of a cabin reveals a large man taking a bath, and he hides to protect his modesty from the fourth wall. <laughs> that is one sketchy-looking guy. You could, if it wasn't flesh-colored, I probably would have thought it was... Practically anything. <laughs> yeah, it, it and we and we don't mean sketchy as in oh that guy seems kind of shady. We mean that is a rough draft sketch. Yes. Now the uh, the vacuuming even encompasses a bridge, which is not helping them at all. Though in their defense, like well, in Rebarb's defense, they were announcing things that were in the way. And Muscle Mutt feels the need to announce a bridge, and like, and thus the bridge gets sucked up. And Muscle Mutt's like, I, I probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Cue uh, Wiley Coyote fall down cliff scene. Yep. Uh, just like old times for Fri Frizz and Bob. Funny though, they they go through all of that to prevent themselves from being damaged going down a cliff, only to go down a cliff. <laughs> And they leave a beautiful square-shaped pit in their wake, from which Rhubarb deploys a deep pit ejector that he brought with him instead of, oh, a ladder. Oh. Oh, I had the worst, the worst joke pop in my head. I don't... Don't, don't let that <laughs> stop you. Well, you said it was an ejector, so I was like, does that mean this is a premature ejectoration? Oh, that is bad. <laughs> But like I said, don't let it stop you. <laughs> a premature ejection. Sorry. Okay. So after they land in a tree, Stutz realizes that everything's gone wrong 
And Musclebutt points out that it's even worse. They lost the train. Oh! Back at the rail office, Judd Farnsworth gives them a severe what for the next day, with Dink Dog helpfully suggesting numdums as an insult to throw at them. <laughs> Back in the day when dumdums was a valid insult. <laughs> Stutz reassures them, telling them not to worry. The Houndcats are here, which is what actually worries Jason. This isn't going to let this stop them because nothing stops the Houndcats. And he's got a secret plan to catch them. It's so secret, he can't even tell the Farnsworths. Wow. And we spin cut to the same hotel from the Snowbiz episode? It's a popular hotel. <laughs> this, this is the 1940s version of uh, of the uh, Motel 6 or something. <laughs> This is, this is the 1914 Holidays Inn. <laughs> yeah. Or Howard Johnson, as opposed to Gabby Johnson, or Reverend <laughs> Johnson, or... Uh, no, this isn't the movie podcast. We're not going to be talking Blazing Saddles. Or Artie Johnson. <laughs> so Stutz believes the ghost isn't, in fact, a ghost, and the fake must be associated with the ANS Railroad. He plans to use Rhubarb's Rail Rerouter Roller, ooh, try saying that three times fast, to divert another train and disguise Sparkplug as said train with the team as crew or passengers. Those are the first two steps of the plan, while step three is running off and panicking. <laughs> oh, I can do that. <laughs> no, not us, Ding. We're going to be sticking with Sparkplug to get to the hideout. Oh, I forgot uh, what his next line was. Yeah, scarcely matters. But that's their plan to bust the scheme once and for all. Totally not a Freddy Jones scheme. <laughs> yeah. So, using bird call signals, the team puts their scheme into action, sending the actual Arizona and Southwest train in very fast circles. And the disguised spark plug heads to the haunting zone, and Ding tells the rest of the team to stand by to panic, prompting Muscle to gulp down his sandwich. I, I, I'm amused. I, I just want to say I'm very amused by Rebarb's outfit. It, his disguise is, he's dressed the same, but he's got lipstick on. That is it. <laughs> yeah. yeah not, not that the others are necessarily much more disguised either. They're at least wearing different outfits. I mean, Muscle must straight up in a dress. <laughs> Of all characters, I might add. <laughs> Cross-dressing is funny? He sure seemed to think that back then. Yeah. So, the next thing we see are a pair of desperado types turning on a projector to create the ghost illusion. And Stutz cues the group to panic, but he has to shush Ding. <laughs> and from their hiding spot... Rhubarb identifies the goon's gear as a stereographic tridimensional sound projector, while Stutz and Ding maintain the train gag via recording of train noises as the goons take it to a secret cavern complete with hidden door and retractable rail. So that must be the projector that all those villains in Scooby-Doo use. Yeah. Since it projects on absolutely nothing and somehow is completely visible. In three dimensions! But as for the retractable rail, that's one way to cover your tracks. 
This is why right. I tell you not to worry about your bad jokes, Pam. Yeah, but mine aren't. <laughs> but, but I made bad jokes that weren't exactly... That would not be allowed on Halfcats. Hmm. Anyhow, as the goon with the severe overbite tells his boss he's got the train, the boss, who sounds a lot like Jason Farnsworth, tells him he heard it was rerouted. Or rerouted. Oh, we, we forgot to mention that. Or did we mention that Rhubarb rerouted the uh, the actual train to run in a complete circle for infinity? We did mention that very briefly, though. Ah. Very, very briefly. You spin me right round, baby. Right round. Okay, I'll stop. The boss says he's going to check matters out, and Stutz goes to bug the phone with a device launched by a blowgun. So when the boss calls back, they'll be able to trace the call from the ANS office. And then they have Sparkplug tiptoe away from the gang. Yep, totally not speed buggy. Totally not chug-a-boom. Now, a rotating rock-cutting cut job later... And some sound effects I know I've heard in a Roadrunner cartoon. <laughs> and the lead hound cats are free. Those gangsters must be so hard of hearing to commit <laughs> that. You know, it, this is the 1914s. There wasn't health insurance or, you know, good ear doctors back then. True. But, but I saw in a droopy cartoon they had hearing aids. But, oh, that, that, that's another continuity altogether. <laughs> Oh, I'm going to go cross-eyed one of these days. I, I I just thought about there's one definite thing that separates Spark Plug from both Chugaboom and uh, Speed Buggy. That being? Not voiced by Mel Blank. Oh, okay. Anyways. So at the rail office, Stutz believe one of the Farnsworth cousins is in charge of the racket, which Rhubarb doubts. But Stutz holds firm, and a buzz comes in on the bugging device. They charge in figuring they'll, that whichever cousin is on the phone is their guy. But they're both on the phone. Oh. However, Stutz was able to figure out which one was responsible because one of them was ordering a sandwich. And there's no way that could be possible. He had to be talking in code because there wasn't a delicatessen four miles away. Well, the logic holds up because he's right. And Jason suddenly goes from being mild-mannered to tremendously demented. Yeah, the artwork on him at this point is off the wall. <laughs> there, there's barely lines to hold this man together. <laughs> right. Jason Farnsworth cackles as he departs on a train engine, and the chase is on. And Rhubarb recommends the use of his LCTTR, which is a luminous-coated, translucent, telescopic train reflector. I think he missed a T in that abbreviation. And I went back and checked. I, I, I believe you. <laughs> Still, it gives Jason a sight of a reflection of his own train as a ghost, sending him in reverse and into the Houndcats. And Rhubarb now deploys RRRR1, a reversing railroad recycler and reconverter to turn the train engine into a cage somehow. Yeah, that one's kind of... That one, wow, the, the amount of suspension of disbelief I would require for that would be on the same level as counting wrestling as a full, like, as a real sport and not sport entertainment. Yeah, yeah anybody who complains that modern wrestling is fake compared to the old stuff, well, just take one look at the Irish whip. <laughs> but, it, but back to this episode, I gotta agree with you, Pemmy, this is about the point where I was almost ready to rage quit. 
But luckily, <laughs> the episode's nearly over. The next day, via exposition, we find out that Judd Farnsworth is in full control of the Arizona and Southwest Railway, and the chief congratulates the Houndcats via smoke signal. And the smoke signal is going to self-destruct in five seconds. How does, how does that precisely matter? Well, I'm guessing it makes the storm cloud that's supposed to cool them off? Yeah, it does cool them off and also fills the spark plug up completely with water. Yeah. But they drive off into the horizon, and that's the end of the episode. I do want to mention one animation error I noticed. When they were reading the uh, smoke signals, and it, it will flash a couple of times to show you, like, Muscle Mutt, Putty Puss, and uh, Rhubarb in the back seat. And I think they mess up, either mess up on the organization of the cells, or just misdrew it, because Rhubarb is really big, and Putty Puss is really tiny hmm fair enough i i kind of think they're in the usual order they are in the back seat but whoever was drawing it i think drew the cells wrong and they they probably meant to have like either that or they thought it was going in the other direction or something but it the sizes look like it was meant to have like rhubarb then muscle mutt then like putty puss because of the sizes or they just messed up who knows but yeah, it's like Rhubarb's really big and he's in the far back of the three and like Putty Puss just looks tiny. <laughs> so nearly 40 years later, are the Houndcats still the best in the West? I think it's actually a pretty good show. It's got problems, but tell me a show in the 70s that doesn't. That's a fair point. A very fair point. It. I do tend to agree. I think maybe you're a little more forgiving of this one than I am, but it, it's still it's still harmless enough fun, and it's definitely good voice acting to carry this thing. Yeah, I, it it's definitely takes a big suspension of disbelief in a lot of the stuff that goes on. But I I really like the Mission Impossible in the 1940s. I mean, 1914 setting. Setting. I think that's a really kind of creative idea. And Absolutely. The setting and they. Despite the outrageous gadgets, and trust me, some episodes get absolutely insane with some way over-the-top Rube Goldberg stuff. There's one where they literally had to uh, change like the settings on this device while someone was watching it. So they literally put like these glasses on the guy that put out, and the glasses put out a projector like a projector like screen and puts an image of said thing that's in front of him so that they can get past him and somehow it works. Hmm. But uh, yeah, uh, the gadgets are insane and, but it's, it's fun. The characters I think are fun. Uh, the voice acting is good. Yeah. It gets a, it, boy, does it take some suspension of disbelief, but I think, yeah, as far as the seventies go, it's fairly creative and it's, Definitely not as, for lack of a better word, schlocky as a lot of 70s era cartoons tend to be. So, mm. Yeah, I'm looking at you, early Super Friends. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> and, which actually kind of makes it a shame this cartoon never really had much of a legacy or a long life in syndication after this. Nope, it got like one season and then it went straight to reruns. I kind of think if it, get, if it got another season or got the make more shows of it it could have probably gotten better i think could have 
One would hope, but well, that was kind of the way of Saturday morning. If it didn't hit really big, it was as disposable as a Dixie cup to the TV executives. And sadly, uh... Nobody seems to care much about it now either, as this show has actually fallen into public domain because no one has uh, kept up with the copyright on it. Is that a fact? I'm going to have to remember that for Flower City Comic Con because there's been talk about us uh, about doing a, a riff on some cartoons. And if that's public domain, then we're in business. Yep, that's what I, that's what I recall reading, which is funny because uh, since I know all the places that the Patty Freeling stuff went to, I know who would own it if it wasn't for the fact that who would own it and who would have had to renew the copyright and didn't in this case. Because uh, if they would have kept up with the copyright, it would have been owned by Disney now. Yeah. But that is not the case. Seemingly this and a lot of, a lot of early, the Patty Freeling TV shows have fallen in the public domain because no one's shown interest to renew the copyrights. Mm. You know, there's a side of me that if we had a, enough money, that we should jump on that. Make the new Hound Cats? Why not? I'd be all for that. I, let, let's <laughs> Kickstarter. New Hound Cat cartoon. Well, we're going to look into that while we go restock the breakfast cereal. So, I'm James Irish. And I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Bye. The Penny and James to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon. The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.